0: Welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Good morning. It's good to uh, be together this morning to uh, worship the Lord, hear from Him out of His Word. We're in Ephesians chapter 4 this morning, if you'll find your, your places there. Ephesians chapter 4. And I'd like for us to um, to read from verse 17, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through the deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. All right, we'll stop at that point, and we'll come back to those uh, those sections at another time. But this morning, we want to focus on the first part of this uh, section, verse 17 uh, through 19. And Paul in this section is going to uh, bring us... Back to where he began in chapter 4, notice there in verse 1, he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So in verse 17, he's returning to this, uh, this initial theme of his admonition to us to walk according to who we are in Christ. Notice how he says it again in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. This word um, walk, uh, Paul liked to use as a metaphor for how we live. It, uh, the word literally means to, to walk about. And it was used, used in that way, literally, walk, but the most of the time we find it, we find it being used as a metaphor for the way we live, our conduct. And the remainder of the letter, Paul is going to admonish us concerning the new life that we have in Christ. You remember the first three chapters, he laid this foundational truth of what God has done for us in Christ, who we are in Christ, and uh, this heavenly calling we've been called to. And now in this last three chapters, he's going to show us the natural outworking of that life, of who we are in Christ, this new life, and what it should look like. As you think back to these believers in Ephesus, you realize that they were saved out of a society that was as wicked and depraved as one could imagine. At the center of this pagan city was the uh, the temple, this great uh, temple to Artemis or Diana, was considered one of the one seven wonders of the world at that time. And like in the other pagan cities, this uh, temple complex was the center of the, of the of the city's life and morality, or you should say the lack of morality, because like in most of the uh, most all of this pagan worship. There was this uh, indulgence, there's this total giving over to every sin and passion and perversion that uh, could be imagined. You could add to that the reality here in, in Ephesus, this uh, temple to Diana. The grounds of this temple were an asylum for convicts, for criminals, people who. Uh, wanted protection from being arrested or prosecuted. They could stay on these grounds. There were some 400 meters across, and uh, they could just live there. And so you can think about how difficult it would be for a believer living in this city, all the perversion of society. And many of them had come out of that lifestyle themselves and now uh, belong to the Lord and are seeking to live for him and so you can imagine the pressure that they may feel to return or to, to remain in some of the patterns and habits of their old their old lifestyle and maybe maybe some of you can relate to that pressure uh, maybe maybe you have friends or uh, friends from your past life even that want to draw you back into their their life or all of us regardless of how long we've been saved we we feel this pull of the world uh, and the, the pull of maybe former habits that we had. Uh, I was blessed by God to be saved when I was very young, 10 years old. And so when I, when I came to faith in Christ, there, there wasn't a, a drastic change in lifestyle. I was young enough that uh, my, uh, my life was, um, was not that much different after my salvation and yet, as I as I began to grow in my faith and, and got older and even went into uh, high school, I was more and more aware of this conflict between who I was in Christ and the world and the, the way of the world around me and the norms of uh, the unsaved world around me. And so I never really quite fit in to... Uh, uh, to, to, the, to the group, to the crowd, to the to the majority of the people that I knew. And in this section, Paul is going to deal with this. He's going to show the clear distinction between the way of the world and the new life that we have in Christ. It, it is natural for us to want to fit in uh, wherever we're at. We, we want to be able to, to be liked and to fit in. And, and there is no virtue in being different just for the sake of being different or being odd. But God has called us to be light in a dark world. And when we walk with Him and in obedience to Him and to honor Him, we're going to be out of step with the world. It's just inevitable. We're not going to fit into the, the way of the world if we're living for God. And the difference that uh, there is, it's not just an outward difference. It's not just um, the different way that we uh, talk and the different way that we act and the different places we go to and, and all of those outward differences, it is a, a fundamental difference now that we're saved. We, we've been changed. We've, we've been transformed. And th- this new uh, person has been created in Christ. And we have a whole new outlook on life. We have a whole new way of thinking, a whole new priority of life. The Spirit of God now resides within us. If you remember back to chapter 2 where Paul there writes that we were dead before in our old life. We were dead in trespasses and sin, but now God has made us alive together with Christ. And He's raised us up and He's seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so now He is calling them and calling us to live this new life in Christ. He says in verse 17, I say and testify in the Lord. This is a a solemn charge. The way that he's worded it, it comes out. uh, It's a very solemn thing. The word testify was also used in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 12, where it's there translated charged. He says, we exhorted each one of you and, and encouraged you and charged you walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And so he, he reminds his readers that uh, the admonition is not just his words, but the Lord's. He says, I say and testify in the Lord. And these words come to us this morning with all the power and authority as if the Lord himself an audible voice were speaking to us. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Well, these believers were uh, physically still Gentiles, but God had given them a new spiritual identity. They are now the body and the bride of Christ, and they can no longer walk in, as they had before as Gentiles. And so Paul is going to show us this contrast. And he's going to remind them of this, this the way of the Gentile world, the life without God. And so he begins with this in, in a negative uh, admonition, what they must not do. And he reminds them really what is in the world and these characteristics of the world. So in verse 17 to 19, he describes this hopeless spiritual condition of the Gentile the gentile world <clears throat> that word translated gentiles is the word ethnos and it just simply means people or nations and as it's often used in the new testament it distinguishes uh, between the jews and these pagan nations but here he's using it in a more general way to describe all of those who are without god and uh, we we often use the word world that way we we see that used also in the Bible, and John in particular uses the world to describe the unsaved. Not just the world system, but the people in the world that are without God. And uh, it's, um, it probably uh, fits better in our context to think about the world rather than just Gentiles. We, we don't tend to use that, that terminology today. But it's the same idea that Paul is dealing with here as he refers to Gentiles. He's talking about the the unsaved world around them. First of all, Paul says that the world's thinking is futile. Verse 17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Futility simply describes that which is empty. It's without purpose. It, it comes to nothing. And it translates an Old Testament word that we are you know, probably familiar with. It was often used, uh, especially by Solomon, the word vanity. You remember in the, in the book of um, Ecclesiastes, uh, he repeats that word often as he describes the, the emptiness, the worthlessness the, of everything without God. He says in chapter 1, verse 1, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, and a striving after the wind. Pretty good description, isn't it, of uh, this hopeless pursuit. And he, he repeats that, that word over and over through the, the book. And he's driving home the point that all of, all of life and, and all of its pursuits without God is vanity. The, the Afrikaans teferchifs really describes what he's getting at here with the idea of futility. Notice Paul doesn't say in our text that their deeds are futile, which often they are, but he really gets right to the to the heart of the problem. He says their thinking is futile. Uh, Also in 1 Corinthians 3 um, in verse 20, we see there the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So it's it's not, he's not dealing with uh, the problem of not being educated enough or not knowing enough. But he, in many cases, those that are educated, that, are, that do have uh, you know, high education, in fact, many times is a drawback to trusting Christ because with wisdom or knowledge comes pride often and um, unwillingness to humble Humble ourselves. And so we see in, in 1 Corinthians this, um, this emphasis upon the, the wisdom of the world and how that they've rejected God. If you want to turn, turn to Romans chapter 1, I want us to go back to that um, passage you're, you're no doubt familiar with from verse 18. Romans 1 from verse 18. That section is really an expansion of what Paul is saying here In our text in Ephesians, I want to read just a part of that section, beginning in verse eighteen, Romans one, and it's a it's a rather lengthy description of the world and its depravity, and how it comes about. Depravity is a word that's used, theological word that's used to describe man in his lostness. It doesn't mean that everybody is as bad as they could be. There's even some unsaved people that you know that, that are rather moral people and, and good neighbors and good, uh, good husbands or wives and so forth. But depravity means that, that um, on their own they cannot please God. They cannot glorify God. And um, they cannot even come to God apart from God's grace and drawing them unto himself. Uh, Verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In other words, the the natural tendency of man is to press down the truth, not listen to it. They don't want to hear it. For what can be known about God is plain to them. He's talking about creation. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely the eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, he's not saying they they knew him personally, but they knew some things about God. They knew there was a, a creator. You can see it. He says they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but notice this last phrase, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And that last statement, that last sentence there brings us to the, Paul's next characteristic of the world and that is that their understanding is darkened. And these two realities really go together. A, a futile mind and a darkened understanding. They, they tend to, to be together. And the mind of the unsaved, the mind and the heart, are linked together. The sin of Adam and Eve brought a darkness upon the world. And all men are born into this spiritual darkness. man on his, his own is unable to, to know God. He has no desire for the things of God. He's he's totally helpless and dependent upon the grace of God to lift this fog, this, this darkness, from his mind. Notice... Uh, It says it in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, the natural person, or the unsaved, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they, referring back to the things of the Spirit of God, they are spiritually discerned. And so there's this spiritual darkness that is over the world and, and all men that come into the world. And there's also, in this world that we live in, this world system that's led by Satan is, is also actively keeping people in their spiritual darkness. If you still have your place in Ephesians, go back to chapter 2 and we'll remember there in the first three verses where Paul is already, he's already described to these believers, reminding them what they were like before they were saved. In Ephesians 2, 1, he says, In you were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the heirs, another way of describing Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in, uh, in the passion of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And as you as you hear these descriptions of man, I hope you're beginning to, to understand the hopeless condition of man without God. Uh, again, in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul's writing there from verse 3, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3, and even if our gospel is veiled, he's referring back to the this darkness that's over the, the eyes of the Jewish people is ve- being veiled. And they did not they, they did not comprehend, they did not see who Christ was, but rejected Him. And he says, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, again, talking about Satan... In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And then, and then the good news. He says, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, words, the creator God has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, He's brought light to us and uh, brought us out of this darkness into the light. By His grace, God breaks through this spiritual fog, this, this darkness, and is caused the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ to to shine upon our hearts and minds so that we may see and perceive who Christ is, what He's done for us, that we might see ourselves in our sins and turn to Him in repentance and faith. Well, another characteristic that Paul gives us here is that the world is alienated from God. Verse 18 He says, they are darkened in their understandings. Back in Ephesians 4, verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. This statement would have reminded uh, the Gentile believers of their previous condition that we read about back in chapter 2. And in that context, he continues, if you go on to verse 12 in Ephesians 2, he says, remember that you are at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. The man is a he's a sinner from birth, but as he grows up and persists in sin and rejection of God, he's further darkened in his understanding. He's alienated from God. Uh, his, his alienation from God is compounded. Uh, by his hardness of heart early in Jesus ministry he confronted the Pharisees and the, the Jewish leaders who, who were very legalistic in their thinking about God and they had um, perverted God's revelation from the Old Testament the law and um, Christ in many ways confronts that confusion and error of the Pharisees uh, they had they had become so concerned about the, the law, the legalistic aspects of the law and their own, their own uh, laws that they had added to God's law and uh, so concerned about keeping the Sabbath that they did not recognize the Lord of the Sabbath. They rejected the Lord of the Sabbath. In Mark chapter 3, we read just one of those um, confrontations. In Mark 3... Jesus goes into the synagogue and there's a man there with a, with a withered hand. And the Pharisees are watching him to see what he's going to do. They suspect that he, will, that he might heal this person as, as he's going around different places. He's, he's healing people and, and uh, they are looking for an opportunity to bring accusations against him. And so they're watching. And Jesus tells this man to come to him. He's got the withered hand. And he he looks at these Pharisees and says, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they, they remain silent. They don't, they don't answer. And verse 5 says, And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And Jesus tells this this man with the withered hand, put out your hand and, and the Lord heals him. And instead of the Pharisees you know, marveling at the power of God and restoring this man's hand, they immediately go out and, and, and meet together decide how they, they can kill Christ. And so you see this, this hardening of the heart. When The heart rejects God and will not listen. It becomes stubbornly hardened to the word of God. No doubt you've run across people that are just hardened in their hearts to to want to hear anything about the Bible or Jesus or God. There's this hardening. Well, Paul moves to a fourth description of the world, and that is that the world lives in the hopeless abandonment. In verse 19, he says, They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Uh, th- this is the only place that this word callous is, is used in the, um, in the Bible. And it's uh, the said the Vertaling, in the, the Old Vertaling, and it's, it's usually describes, uh, it's used to describe this, this losing of the capacity to feel shame or embarrassment. And it fits with the previous description of the hardness of heart. They tend to flow out of the other. This, uh, you persist in hard, hardening of the heart, the rejection of uh, what you, your conscience tells you is right. If You, you persist in that. You, you become callous and unfeeling to a sense of wrong. And we see that today often, more and more, don't we, in our society. The world around us is becoming more open what what was done sins that were done in the past that were hidden kept quiet now is paraded in front of us and and bragged about and promoted as uh, as good the neeft voor tolling voor tal eerste ninting sho alle het hiltemal afgestomp geraak en alle met onversargbare drong aan losbandigheid oorgegee om al but fail is to do. This, this word translated sensuality, losbandechet, it's used in the, in the New Testament to describe being, comp, to, to completely abandon any sense of moral restraint and to, to give oneself over to, to sexual lasciviousness. And so that's the, that's the end of the man in sin. This progression that you see move, that moves away from God, hardening of heart, an abandonment from God, this um, becoming numb, uh, despondent. Uh, think about um, cases of suicide in our society. Uh, all of those things culminate in what Paul is describing here. J. Vernon McGee, uh, what... Um, with the Lord now, but he's, he was a, a preacher and a, uh, a, a teacher of God's Word. He, he writes, the Gentiles' continuance in the state of moral ineptude brings them down to the level where they have no feeling of wrongdoing. Uh, there's a, a lot of folk like that today. They are apathetic. The result, resultant condition is to plunge further into immorality and lasciviousness. This vicious cycle leads to a desire to go even deeper into sin. If you paint the town red tonight, you'll have to have a a bigger bucket and a bigger brush for tomorrow. The meaning here is to covet the very depths of immorality. Man in sin is never satisfied with sin. They become abandoned to sin. That is what is meant in Romans chapter 1 that God gave them up to all uncleanness through their own lust. You can reach a place, my friend, where you are an abandoned sinner, end of quote. Also, John MacArthur, writing in his uh, commentary on Ephesians, uh, says, when a person determines to think his own way, to do his own way, and to pursue his own destiny, he cuts himself off from God. And When that happens, he cuts, cuts himself off from truth and becomes spiritually blind and without standards of morality. Without standards of morality, immorality becomes a shameless and calloused way of life. And when that is continued, it destroys the mind's ability to distinguish good from evil, truth from falsehood, and reality from unreality. The godless life becomes the mindless life. Well, in conclusion, Paul shows us uh, this reality of the world, the, the, the pagan society around us. And we're living in a time when we see our society uh, rushing headlong into this very lifestyle, this very things that he's describing, this abandonment of God. And our our headlines today could read, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Before we leave this passage this morning, I want us to see verse 20, where he says, But that is not the way you learn Christ. By God's grace, we've been saved out of this hopeless condition in the world. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the grace of God that's come to us. And as we consider this description of the world, it should cause us to have compassion on the world around us. Those who are lost without God. And it should help us to realize why they're not willing to listen oftentimes. it is uh, sometimes amazes us when we come to faith in Christ, we, we just often assume that other people also want to hear this good news. That other people will also be excited about what God has done for them, and often we find the opposite. They don't want to hear, they don't want to listen, and and this is why. It's because of of sin and the impact of sin and the darkness and the and the hardening of heart. This is why we find it so difficult to often to talk to our our friends and and uh, family members, and it should cause us to pray for them and to be patient with them in sharing the gospel. It's easy just to write people off and say, "Well, if they don't want to listen, I just I'm through with them." When um, Christ you know, passage we looked at in Mark, when he saw the hardness of heart of the uh, Pharisees, he, he he was angry. There was this anger in his heart at this hardness of heart, and but you see, he, he's also his compassion and his uh, desire to continue speaking the truth and living the truth. Well, as we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, let us let us remember the price that was paid to redeem us, to deliver us out of the kingdom of darkness and to, to make us His own child, to give us new life in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we, we do rejoice in You this morning and what You have done for us. It's difficult to uh, listen to read about the description of the world, and we, we can see the decline of our own society. By God's, by, by your grace, we, we are not as bad as um, Ephesus was. But in many ways, we see our Western world um, declining and moving further away from you, becoming more and more hardened to your word, more and more given over to practice every kind of uh, immorality. So, Father, I pray that we as believers might uh, stand firm upon the truth of your word, that we would not be pulled along with the world into immorality, but that we would um, stand faithful to you, walking with you in love and compassion, but, but being strong to stand against uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And Lord, we can only stand by Your grace and by Your strength. And so I pray it would remind us that we daily need You. That we da- daily need Your help to guide us and to be with us. So, Father, as we come to, in remembrance of what You did for us on the cross, Lord, I pray that as we've heard this message, it would uh, cause us to be even more thankful, even more grateful for Your grace in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Those who the Lord saves, he will not let slip from his hand. Let's stand and praise him.
1: When I fear my faith would fail. He will hold me fast Those he saves are his delight This has been sad.